0: Celtics beat for Saturday, May 3rd. I'm Ty Ray, joined by Dr. Andre Snelling. He's the senior writer for Roto-Wire. Thanks for joining me today, Andre. Hey,
1: it's great to be here, Ty, as always. Too
0: bad we have absolutely nothing to talk about on this Saturday.
1: (laughs) Well, you know, uh, there's still plenty of NBA in the world, even if the Celtics are a little bit on a break.
0: Yeah, a long break, but today we've got a great show. We've got Jeff Zilgit, writer from USA Today, he covers the NBA, and we've also got Scott Souza from Metro West Daily. He's the Celtics beat writer there. He's been covering the team since 2005. We're going to ask them both about the Donald Sterling controversy, what they think about the NBA's actions against Sterling. Before we get to those interviews later in the show, I want to throw this out to you, Andre. When you first heard the comments made by Donald Sterling, were you
1: shocked or not so shocked? You know, it's kind of bad to say, but I was not even mildly surprised. Um, Donald Sterling had never really gone out of his way to hide who he is or what he stood for. And so um, when I heard, I guess the only surprising thing about the whole thing was that it was on tape in such detail, and he was just giving from his own mouth what before people could only guess at but, I mean, you know, we, we've had years – I remember when Baron Davis was, you know, screaming at, at, at him on the sidelines and talking about how bad the environment was there. I remember the lawsuits and the, the talk of racial discrimination, and, you know, I remember the Elgin Baylor. So just, you know, as an African-American myself, you know – we, we, you have to be aware of your surroundings, and when you're as immersed in basketball as I am, and Donald Sterling, I mean, he owns he owns one of the the few uh, best teams in the world. He owns one of them. He did a terrible job owning them, but he did own one, so that made him an important figure um, in, in my life. And so, you know, I, I had to I, I was always aware of of who he was purported to be, and so if anything. This incident just kind of confirmed that.
0: Well, let me ask you a question here, Andre. Are you disappointed that Doc Rivers, knowing what he had to have known about Donald Sterling, decided to take that job with the Clippers?
1: It's an interesting kind of, you know situation. I mean, it's really hard to condemn or even speak ill of someone else's decisions when you don't know all that went into it. Um we we now have a lot of evidence of, 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 of what Donald Sterling is like and this is casting no aspersions but we know what any other situation is like. So, you know, there there has to be some separation between your business life and, and your personal decisions. And honestly speaking and, and it's 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 interesting to say, especially I believe in this day and age a lot of people kind of feel that race relations are well, I won't say it like that. They are a lot better than they have have ever been, and I am extremely appreciative of that, but they're not perfect. And so, again, as an African American, I've worked in workplaces where I'm generally the only African American who's not on the cleaning staff, you know, for my whole adult life. And so you, you have to learn how to operate in environments that aren't always conducive, aren't always the best. And so, you know, even if it was suspected that Donald Sterling was, you know what he has shown himself to be there was no graphic proof until this you know this happened and so you know i mean i can't condemn doc i can't be disappointed in doc for making the best decisions for his family and and, you know trying trying to to make things work but you know i did appreciate after the fact after the evidence was was so graphic um he he was not making political politically nice statements he was very clear on what his feelings about Donald Sterling were at that point forward. And, and I felt that that was worthy of respect.
0: And I want to ask Jeff Silgett from USA Today the same question. We've got him on the line. Let's go to him now. Hey, Ty,
2: how are you doing?
0: Good. Hey, uh, my first question to you, my friend, is when you got word that Donald Sterling actually said these things, were you at all shocked at
2: all? I'm, at all. mildly shocked. Uh, So we all sort of have some idea of Donald Sterling's background. Um, But to put it, you know, in in such blatant terms uh, for for everyone to hear, I guess that's the thing that uh, sort of uh, stunned me. And you know how we all sort of have uh, an editor in our head? Uh, He he did not have that editor at all working. And, you know, he just kept going on and on and on. Uh, about certain things, and that's the part that, uh, you, you know, really surprised me, that there, there was just, you know, no no indication from him at all that uh, what he was saying was inappropriate.
0: It's funny, Jeff. Part of me, when I heard the recording, was thinking to myself, "It's not to play pop psychologist here, right. but part of me was wondering if he wanted to be heard. The way that he was talking, sure. it was just so over the top. He sounded like a plantation owner.
2: He sure did. And, you know, that's the thing. I I don't know enough of, you know, uh, not being uh, black uh, or, uh, you know, I'm just a white guy, put it uh, bluntly. So, you know, I don't always feel I'm compelled uh, to to speak out, uh, you know, authoritatively on race issues all the time because, you know, I'm not affected like others. Um, And I just don't know the history enough. But the the whole idea, if you – if you remember one of the instances where someone uh, said he went into the locker room and had brought uh, other people, and, and he he encouraged the the his guests to admire the the, the bodies of the athletes, <laughs>
3: yeah. and
2: and, and that, that sort of that had that struck that plantation theme in my head, uh, you know the plantation owner, you know admiring the, the black person for their physical ability. Uh, to do their work.
0: Yeah, stunning, absolutely stunning. Now, there were telltale signs that this could happen long before it did, and that's why I'm a little surprised, and I don't mean to put Doc Rivers on the spot here because I think he's handled the situation well, but I'm really surprised Doc would choose to work for somebody who had those questions about them. Do you know what I mean?
2: I I do know what you mean, and I think at a certain point, uh, we're going to get there, and, and Doc will answer that. I don't think he's in position to answer it right now. Uh, I, I thought the same thing. We all sort of knew, and I guess the only thing I can – you know, look, at this isn't justification for, for anyone, but I do understand there are limited jobs in the league. I mean, 30 coaching jobs, 30 GM, VP of basketball ops jobs, and Doc was getting paid a handsome, handsome amount. Uh, and I'm not saying that you know it, it, Doc didn't need the money, but when you can set up, you, you know, generations of your family, you, you know, for years and years to come, and if the if the Donald Sterling, you know, background uh, isn't bubbling over the top and is so blatant, then you can sort of understand why not only Doc but other people. I've taken jobs with the organization. You know, Elgin Baylor worked there for years and years and years. Right. Uh, You you know, similar situation. And, you you know, I'm I'm not to say, well, uh, you know, in it for the money or anything like that, you know, but I I do understand uh, a limited time for some people to make a significant amount of money. And if it's not blatant, I I do see uh, where it happens. And I can't say, you know, to myself that, I, you know, I would have acted any differently.
0: And you are coaching Chris Paul, and you're coaching your MVP candidate, Blake Griffin.
2: Yeah, absolutely. You think you have a uh, a shot at winning a title? Uh, you know, I mean, he he bargained uh, and made a deal to become what senior VP of basketball ops. I mean, you know, he he, he got a, on the uh, hierarchy. You know, he moved in and had a uh, position higher than Gary Sachs, So I think it's just VP of basketball ops. And I know they work in conjunction, but you know, Doc went in with a, a, a hard sell and, and, and bargained and got what he wanted. And, he, you know, you can understand that part of it, too. Um, and and then there could be some, you know, part of this where, you know, maybe Doc looked at it and felt he was a de facto owner, you know, right. uh, was there. But, you know, Doc got what he wanted, uh, and Donald Sterling wasn't going to make any, uh, you, you know, wasn't going to get in Doc's way. So to speak, and uh, you know, so you add up, you know, almost everything we're talking about, and you can see how you know something like this, you know, would happen.
0: So, still, silver makes the statement. He bans Sterling for life. He finds him two point five million dollars. They're going to force him to sell the team. But I don't see an egomaniac like Sterling going out quietly. Do you? Uh,
2: I I don't. uh, There's there's just, yeah, I, I I don't. That's the bottom line. And, And and people who have battled him in courtrooms, whether it's Elgin Baylor or or Mike Dunleavy. I think Bill Fitch, Bob Weiss, also had to uh, go to, I don't know if it was always courtroom but maybe arbitration, but, you know, some kind of, you know, settlement uh, arena to get money they thought they were owed. And and through the years, we've seen, I believe this is the the one funny thing, uh, it's not funny if you're Bill Fitch, but I think Donald Sterling sued Bill Fitch for not actively <laughs> looking for a job after he fired him. I think that was the you know uh, we understand when a coach gets fired, there's going to be a uh, a payout and then you know, they're going to come to terms for a, of a buyout and all that kind of stuff. But he made Bill Fitch you know promise that he was going to actively search for a job. Well, geez, there's 30 head coaching jobs. You know what, what other job? You know where is he going to go? I just thought you know so not only does he not mind. Uh, being sued uh, and going to court, he, he also is not afraid to sue as well. So I'm with you. I think that's a, uh, you know, and I believe the NBA is bracing for that as well. I think that's a lot of what's going on uh, in, in NBA offices right now. They're they're trying to figure out what their move is going to be when Donald Sterling decides to file some kind of an injunction to stop the league from forcing him to sell the team.
0: What did you think of Adam Silver's performance
2: Thought was a grand slam, uh, you know. Whatever sports analogy you prefer to use, or would like to use. Adam was fantastic when he spoke that Saturday night, the night, uh, the day the news broke uh, in force, and he was in Memphis, and he, you know, he was already going to speak to the media there. I thought he was a little nervous, um, you know. I, I think he was stunned and shaken uh, by the comments as well. It, let me just back up a point and say, you know, while I do think something should have happened to Donald Sterling long before this moment, the league has been very progressive on social issues. And and I think that's where, you know, Adam really felt it um, most. And so he walked out there and I thought at the very beginning when he started to, you know, talk about the findings and that the, the voice on the recording is his I thought there was a, you know, a little bit of nerves, but once Adam started rolling, there was such conviction in his voice and and the thing I thought that was uh most interesting to me is that he was both human and compassionate um and when he needed to be a lawyer and commissioner, uh he was that as well. Um if you as you noticed, there were not many rambling answers. Um he he gave his uh introduction introductory speech um, and then for questions, he stuck to the point uh, to whatever that question was. I looked at the transcript of that, and th- there weren't many times where he spoke in uh, more than four sentences um, to a reporter's question. So uh, everything was direct. Uh, part of it was because I also believe that he did not want to say anything that Donald Sterling potentially could use to, use against him if they ended up in court. And that's why – to address another portion of this whole topic, is why we haven't seen the NBA come out and express any kind of regret for not having uh, sanctioned Sterling uh, any harder in previous years uh, because they're going to stick to what's in front of them right now and use that and that alone a- as their basis uh, for trying to force him to sell the team.
0: Not to take a shot here at uh, David Stern. There's, there's no none, way he could have no, pulled off. Adam, yeah, there, there's no way that he could have pulled off what Adam Silver pulled off this past weekend.
2: Well, there there's would no have been. Way. Yeah, there's uh, well a couple of things here. Not to take a shot at uh, David, um, you know that is. Uh, I think that's one of the uh, the marks against David's tenure, right there. We can talk about lockouts. Uh, those happen across the board. That, that's just not uh, germane to the NBA or anything. Uh, labor stoppages happen across the board. Uh, The referee uh, scandal with Tim Donahue, um, certainly that bothers um, David to this day. Um, I I thought David reacted uh, way earlier. And then to your point about David would have been so full of anger about the situation. Um, And, you know, those are the times where, you know, David was probably at his worst when it came to, you know, collective bargaining or, you know, behind the scenes things that uh, embarrassed the league, in that nature. And it probably wouldn't have been a good look for David to be angry in that situation um, and, and let too much of his emotions spill over, which I think probably would have happened. And, and Adam was in full control of the situation.
0: Well, I also found that Stern, in his tenure, had such contempt for the media. That I don't think he would have communicated the message well. I just felt that, David was always above it all.
2: And that you know, it's an interesting thing too because you know my knowledge and, and you know just history of the league and researching it is, is that David was uh, very pro media when he first broke into the league, and, and he had his reasons for that. When when he starts as general counsel in, in the in the seventies and in the league is entering this sort of you know, odd period where they're getting ready to really turn the corner, but there's a little bit of a, uh, a drug issue that permeates through the league. And one of the things that David truly felt, and, and again, this goes to the progressiveness uh, of the tone he said at times, I thought, is that he wanted to pull back the curtain a little bit and see that not everyone in the league is a drug abuser or a drug user or anything like that. There's tons of outstanding citizens in this league. So he really allowed the media in, um, I believe. Um, you know, for the longest years, I-, I thought the NBA, you know, had some of the best daily access to coaches and players as any league uh, in pro sports. Um, but I do see your point as well is that near the end, when the whole landscape was changing with the media, uh, not only with the web, um, but, you know, just so many different outlets uh able to write that David did not have control over everything and, and he, he, you're right he did get a little flustered uh with the media at times and you know that probably again wouldn't have been his best moment because he he probably wouldn't have liked uh, a handful of questions that were asked
0: let's talk about basketball finally let's yeah, talk about yeah. what's going on in In L.A. with the Lakers, they fire Mike D'Antoni. And then Magic Johnson comes out and says, happy days are here again. That really surprised me.
2: Yeah, that was, uh, you know, talking about, uh, if we're going to talk about Adam Silver's, you know, finest moment, certainly not Magic's finest moment, because you know what? Uh, Magic was a, uh, you know, early on last week uh, or late in the week, early in the week when the whole Donald Sterling thing was breaking, you, you know. Magic's always been a, a a statesman for the league and I, I didn't he didn't handle that well at all. we know what Magic thinks about Mike D'Antoni. Um, you know, I think Magic needed to take a, a one a step back on that tweet. But also to take a look at what Mike Dantoni was working with. <laughs> no with, kidding. with that team. You know, let, let, let's just be honest here. Um, you know, not only did he not have Kobe um Paul Gasol was in and out. Paul Paul did not see eye-to-eye with Antonio in the way they wanted to play. You you know, know, uh, it just wasn't a very, very good team out there. You know, maybe there's a couple individual pieces that would work better with another team, uh, but, you know, it just didn't work out. And, you know, not always Mike's fault, some of it his fault, uh, but I just didn't care for the way uh, Magic did that. And you know what? Again, I wouldn't be surprised whether it's today, tomorrow, in a couple of days, that magic backtracks a little bit. But we all know that he did not let D'Antoni as coach of that team. He didn't
0: need to do that. No, no, he didn't. And any idea who you think might be a good fit there? Who would want that job right now?
2: Well, I tell you what, and, and this is, again, this kind of goes back, and this is what I always hear from general managers, owners, uh, mostly owners when, when they're talking about hiring GMs and coaches, is that so many people want the job. Uh, for a variety of reasons, one it's the Lakers. Uh, they generally don't have any problem paying their coaches. Uh, it's one of thirty. I mean, that's just the bottom line. Yep. You are in a very exclusive uh, group, um, right there, um, and, and so you know that one. It's a, a in general. I know they've had their struggles uh, the last couple of years since Phil left. That uh, they're trying to find their way since uh, Jerry Buss died as well. Um, but it's an organization that by and large is well run. Uh, the goal is to win championships. I, I believe that Mitch Kupchak has been, you know, still has that authority uh, to go out and run the team as he sees fit, just as he did it during the fill days. And so if you're a coach out there, you're thinking that sooner or later, you know, how many down periods have there been for the Lakers over the past 30, 40 years? There's not many. They usually find a way to get back. And so you know that that team's going to spend money uh, on players as well to get back uh, you know, to a championship-caliber team. And, and so I think there's a handful of guys out there. Uh, the one thing that's just becoming apparent early on is that I don't think the Lakers are going to be in any rush. There's no need for it right now. And that they're going to take a look at a variety of candidates. I think they'll take a look at big-name kind of guys because that's what the Lakers like to do. It is, Let's not forget it, it is showtime. I think they're also going to take a look at the the ex-player possibility and the former coach who's been around for a little while, a George Carlisle, Lionel Hollins type, uh, and and maybe even look at the uh, the big-name college guy who might show some interest. And I know John Calipari's name uh, jumps to the top of that list as well. But let's not also forget the direction that, you know, some teams like a – let's just use Memphis with Dave Yeager – Atlanta with Mike Budenholzer, Philadelphia with Brett Brown. Uh, You look at Utah, they're looking at Jim Boylan, who is assistant in San Antonio. The kind of guy who does not demand a huge paycheck, knows his basketball, X's know, that's probably the last option on the Lakers list because you also do need a strong personality who's going to come in and, and be able to handle Kobe and all that comes with L.A., Uh, But don't overlook the fact that if they're going to have this extensive search, that they're going to look at a lot of different options.
0: Jeff, just a couple minutes left as we do this recording. Kevin Durant, Dwight Howard, Jason Kidd, three people that come to name. Their teams are on the ropes. What does it mean for each one of them if they were to bow out in the first round?
2: Yeah, uh, so let me start with uh, Jason Kidd. Uh, By all accounts, Jason uh, – is going to get a little bit of a pass for this season. Um, his first year, it took him a little bit to figure it out. You did see in the second half of the season, or maybe even from January 1 on, that Jason started to find his niche. He he saw how he needed to play. He put people in the right position. Uh, a little bit disappointed in the way, not only did they finish the year, it, you know, I just thought it was odd the way uh, they potentially or they did sit players to potentially get a lower seed and avoid the Chicago Bulls um, when the Chicago Bulls were running on fumes. Uh, But I think Jason will be back. I don't think there's uh, too much concern uh, about that. With Kevin Durant, man, I I guess we look back, was it uh, Dirk Nowitzki, the the last MVP to go out in the first round um, the the year he won? um, And – so if you look at it uh, like that, a very disappointing finish, he had a great year. Uh, there was some great improvement in his game. He showed that not only did he increase his scoring, he improved his assist, and he carried that team without Russell Westbrook. But it's no doubt uh, disappointing. I think in that situation, a guy like Scott Brooks ultimately might be the guy who takes the fall uh, for their disappointing uh, finish, if they don't make it out of the first run. And we're going to have to go back. What was the third name he gave me? Dwight Howard. Uh, Dwight Howard, yeah. Uh, You know what my thought is? And I picked the Trailblazers to win this series, and I'll tell you why. Only because I did not think the Rockets were made for a seven-game series. Uh, While Dwight plays great defense, I don't know if he has much help on the perimeter, especially with James Harden. And I don't know, you know, not to say that they're quite like the Phoenix Suns, um, who had this great pace during the regular season, but it wasn't made for the playoffs. But Houston's pace during the regular season—they do like to get it up and down. Teams like to be a little bit more methodical in the postseason, and, and I just didn't think it was a good matchup. Um, Dwight needs a little bit more help. Uh, I think he's been fantastic the past few games, uh, but he needs some help uh, defensively on the perimeter if Houston wants to, you know, take that next step, whether it's even this season or next season.
0: I'll tell you. As a guy who lives in the Pacific Northwest, it's great to see Lamarcus Aldridge and Damian Lillard finally get on the big stage
2: for the uh, it, whole nation to see. Well, it's fantastic. You know, the one thing, and you know, so we saw what Damian did, obviously as a rookie. Uh, I, I'm I'm really pleased the way Lamarcus is. Uh, you know, not only emerged uh, but handled this. I was always a little, I don't I don't know if disappointed is the right word because you know each guy has his own decision, but. Um, You know, he didn't show much interest in playing for USA Basketball. And and I think these days, and he has shown interest now, but these days it's such a a badge of honor to play for Team USA, the the way probably post-Athens, the way Jerry Colangelo has turned it around. And, you know, I I would talk to people at USA Basketball, and they would tell me he just hasn't shown any interest. And I just, you know, look, it's each individual guy's decision. Um, but but I think that just puts him on a you know he uh, on a on a different level you know not only an all star but you're playing with you know the very top you know 12 guys in the world uh, when, when you play with Team USA so I'm also glad to see him come around on that topic as well.
0: Jeff Zilgit, great conversation about what's going on in the NBA today. NBA writer for USA Today. Thanks, Jeff. Appreciate you being on hey. Celtics Beat.
2: Hey, no problem. Thanks for having me. Take care. All right, hey, take care of yourself, uh, and I appreciate a few minutes of you guys' time as well.
0: Andre, I said this to Jeff Zilgit and being from the Northwest, I'm really proud of the way the Portland Trailblazers are playing, and it's great guys like LaMarcus Aldridge and Damian Lillard are finally
1: getting their due on the biggest stage. Oh, yeah. I mean, Portland, they play – the kind of basketball that is just fun to watch. You know, I actually, I wrote an article about this uh, in, in the fall, you know, right when they were off to what people thought was just kind of a flukish hot start. And I just talked about how, you know, their basketball is so, you know, unselfish and the ball moves around and there's enthusiasm. People work hard. The starters play big minutes. The the role players know their roles and, it's just really fun to see a team like that playing well on the bigger stage. And and I don't remember if it was with you, but I know I made the comment on the year before that, you know, Damian Lillard, he could walk into a mall and not have to worry about getting mobbed in, in a way <laughs> that, so that other players, you know, don't have. So, you know, if he keeps this up, maybe his anonymity might go away.
0: I want to talk about Kevin Durant and Dwight Howard, two guys mentioned in the interview we did with Jeff, they could go out in the first
1: round. what does that mean for them in your opinion? see it means more in the type of legacy barbershop conversations that that I like to to engage in. you know I hang out on on message boards and and really get into well, who was the greatest this who was the greatest that and with the, you know they're both i guess dwight's not so young anymore, but relatively young players trying to fit into that pantheon, and Durant just turned in a season that you know, had people on those boards talking about, or is this one of the greatest offensive seasons ever? Did he just move into one of the top ten peak seasons of all time? And so if he follows that up by going out in the first round, not just going out in the first round, but playing poorly, you know, shooting well below his expectations, um, if he goes out that way, then what was a dream season is probably going to be an MVP season becomes a bit of a black mark in his uh, legacy that he'll have to make up for. Maybe how LeBron had a similar situation in 2011 after the Heat lost to to the Mavs in the finals. Um, he had a lot to prove after that. And I think that and that si- would be true of, of Durant and, and Howard as well.
0: And since we're talking a Celtics show here, where the Celtics beat, and we've got Scott Souza from Metro West Daily coming up, the idea of Durant maybe going out in the first round, I'm thinking to myself, he might be saying – this is as far as I can go here, and he might be looking for greener pastures, no pun intended.
1: <laughs> greener, I, like, I see what you did there. I see what you did
0: there. <laughs> <laughs> Unintentionally.
1: Yeah, I mean, that, that's it's a question. You know, there are so many people that feel that, well, can Kevin Durant and, and Russell Westbrook coexist? Um, is, is Scott Brooks a good enough coach and, and tactician? If, if you follow Twitter, the the NBA writers are just so skeptical of everything that, that that Brooks does you know all the tweets that's the play he drew up that's the best he can do so yeah maybe Durant might be feeling frustration I guess the question from, from as from a Celtics point of view is we, we would love to have him come to to the green of or this uh on this side of the country but the question is does, does Durant move on or does the GM start moving some of those other pieces elsewhere
0: like scott brooks right i can't imagine they would let a marquee player like kevin durant go it would seem to me they would do everything possible to hang on to him he's just such a good guy too he's a great ambassador for everything not just a great player
1: just exactly. such a great
0: man too
1: exactly and i mean he, he's a once-in-a-generation talent you know that i mean that's what he is so unless he has leverage there's no way oklahoma city lets him go um if he comes to be one of those free agent well you better trade me because I'm, I'm not coming back here um, type decisions, then then maybe that's different. But he doesn't seem the type to draw that line in the sand publicly. So um, I, I have to feel he's going to be in Oklahoma City for a really long time.
0: Let's say Dwight Howard goes out in the first round. What does it say about him? He had the one brief stint in L.A. that was unsuccessful. He did nearly take the magic to an NBA title. But uh, is he marked if the Rockets don't get over the hump here? They spent a lot of money there.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think we're getting a good glimpse of of what Dwight Howard really is. You know, I think the fact that that the Magic went to the finals and that Howard was the central piece and there were no other big names maybe convinced people that he was a bit better than he is. He's an an outstanding player, but I don't necessarily see him in the historic light. You know, we know LeBron's going to slot in there. It certainly looks like Kevin Durant is. I don't think Dwight Howard is that guy. And I think that the other magic were contributing more than we realized, that Stan Van Gundy was doing a heck of a job. And, frankly, let's be real, he got lucky that Kevin Garnett injured his knee that year or else he never would have had that finals appearance. So, you know, I think Howard's a great player, but I think maybe this year is among the death nails for him as one of the top, you know, challenging LeBron for the best players in the NBA. Like, that, he's just not that guy. Well, let's continue to talk NBA playoffs.
0: Let's talk about the Donald Sterling controversy and maybe even throw in some Celtics. Let's go to Scott Souza from Metro West Daily. Hey, it's Ty Ray from Celtics, Pete. How are you?
3: Oh, not too bad. How's things going?
0: Good, good. Hey, thanks for spending some time with us today. I guess we need to start off with, of course, the whole Donald Sterling situation. And what are your feelings? Did the NBA handle it well? Were you shocked by his comments?
3: Uh, obviously, we're, uh, well, in terms of being, uh, and you weren't, sh- You the, sh- the comments themselves were shocking. You weren't shocked when you found out where they came from, of course, um, in terms of uh, Donald Sterling. He had a history of that. Uh, I do have to commend the NBVA for the way they handled it, and especially Doc Rivers for the way that he handled it out there. You know, uh, coming from the perspective of seeing how it ended here and seeing how he kind of, you know, forced his way into Los Angeles, it was one of those things, that when he first came out, you knew that he was leading the Celtics for an organization with questionable ownership, and, and you looked at it and you said, "Wow, oh, what a time for payment to come due uh, in the playoffs and have that type of distraction. But as much as he you know, might have known or should have known what type of situation he was getting into out there, I don't think there's anybody better suited to lead that team through that situation. Uh, I think he's done a great job with doing that just from uh, being 3,000 miles away and seeing what's been on television and uh, obviously he had been playing uh, at, a great, at a great pace on, uh, on, on the other day coming off of uh, Adam Silver's decision.
0: Scott, I think this is a fair question to ask, though, about Doc Rivers. We knew, I think most people knew Donald Sterling's feelings when it came to minorities, so shouldn't we question Doc just a little bit for associating with, a, with an organization headed by a man who's had these types of feelings. This was no secret.
3: Yeah, and I mean, I guess you could uh, associate anybody with, you know, who joins the Clippers, who decides to go there as a free agent, who was sure. drafted, or who stays there and saying, well, why were you here? I mean, you could have done the same thing with the Cincinnati Reds back in the 1980s. Um, that's why I don't think a lot of people felt that bad for him right when it happened. You know, if you go out there to win a championship and things kind of fall apart because this comes up, well, you knew you were setting yourself up for that possible situation something like that was probably going to come up eventually now we probably thought he could have gotten through at least one year with the playoffs and got away with it but no you didn't feel sorry for him eventually don't feel that sorry for him now but you do have to take a step back and say okay since it happened since it happened in that type of way i mean there's one thing to have racist comments come out from a you know to be perfectly honest a rich white business owner. um and there's another to have it come down in such a public way during the playoffs uh, in that firestorm. Teams talking about boycotts. Uh, you were in charge of trying to keep it all together, and I think you do have to commend Doc a little bit. Uh, again, maybe not to feel sorry for him because he got himself into that situation, but as I said, uh, probably better suited than perhaps anybody I think in the NBA to get his team through that situation and, and maybe even for uh, it coming out on the other side.
0: Scott, do you think Sterling's going to go quietly? I just don't get that feeling. I think this is going to get uglier and uglier.
3: Yeah, I don't think he's going to go quietly, but I think the NBA owners are going to stand um, really united on this. And, you know, Adam Silver showing great leadership, I thought the other day, uh, in terms of, that press conference and coming out unequivocally, you know, in a way that you never – you got the feeling watching that press conference that Adam Silver was looking out for his players in a way that you never really got that feeling over the last few years that David Stern was. David Stern always seemed to have an attitude of, you know, this this is our league collectively himself and the owners. Uh, You guys are employees. Uh, It alienated a lot of players. It goes back Mm -hmm. to the dress code stuff from the 90s, um, the way he dismissed uh, the referee a uh, situation a couple of years ago when one of the referees was caught uh, uh, betting on the games, you know, don't worry about it. It's an isolated in- incident. You know, we don't need to talk about this. Uh, during the lockout, very, very divisive person. I mean, just ask uh, in, a, in a quiet moment, Kevin Garnett, what he thinks about David Stern and how he handled the lockout. <laughs> so, in response to this, you have in his first big challenge, Adam Silver coming out and standing with the players and standing, you know, with all of the NBA, obviously, but especially a uh, majority-minority league, like, Uh, The NBA is 75% African-American, standing with the players, you know, mentioning specific trailblazing players during this press conference and saying basically telling the owners, listen, this is what I've decided to do and you're going to help me force him to sell the team. Now, whether, you know, that gets drawn out legally uh, remains to be seen, but the point that the NBA is, is basically saying get out. You know, you'll get your billion dollars. Don't worry, we're not taking the team away from you. At least, you know, that doesn't seem to be the case. I don't know if they'll try that at some point to dissolve the team if Sterling really gets uh, his backup out of this. But, uh, but basically, you know, he was asked the question of, uh, you know, what if you think you can get the 75% of the owners to stand with you? And he basically was like, yeah, that you know, this is what i have decided, and this is what they're going to do because of it. But I think it was very refreshing, not only to NBA fans in light of what we saw from David Cern over the years, but I think sports fans in general really having a commissioner that came out defending the game as a whole as opposed to just defending the business aspect of the game. And obviously some of this plays into that. The you know, NBA was going to lose money if they didn't act strong. You're going to have more sponsors pull out. But there was a business aspect of it. But you got the feeling watching Adam Silver that it was, it was more personal, it was more principled than just, uh, you know, This is how we have to save our revenues and make
0: more revenues. And you had a great tweet about this, Scott. You said that Adam Silver did more to help save the NBA in 20 minutes than (laughs) David Stern did in 20 years. I couldn't agree more. I'm not a huge fan of David Stern. I never have been. I'm from the Northwest, so that's, that's obvious why I'm not a fan. But I thought that was a great tweet you put out there about what he did in 20 minutes that David Stern didn't do in 20 years.
3: Yeah, and again, you know, David Stern did a lot to build up the NBA in, in the 80s, but he just seemed to he, he seemed to take responsibility for the NBA in a way that, you know, when you watch – I mean, there's no game that's more player-centric, I don't think, than the NBA. I mean, look at the NFL. One player can't win a game in the NFL. In the NBA, arguably one player can – if he can't win a championship, he can come pretty close. So it, it, it is a player's league, and David Stern was so confrontational to the players about that for so many years and so condescending when it came to a lot of big things. And I think that alienated. You know, it, it, it's a sport that sometimes has image problems to begin with, and some of that racially biased across the country. Why it has image problems, uh, uh, unfounded, I think. Why it has image problems a lot of times, but a lot of people just don't like the NBA game and say it was better in the '80s. The whole thing, which you've probably heard a million times. And I don't think David Stern really ever did anything to help that. He, he almost, you know, sometimes kind of made it seem like, yeah, you're right. It, it probably was better in the '80s, and this is, you know, that was when we were in control of the game, and and all that other uh, nonsense that he would, uh, you know, spew during some of his press conferences. Uh, whereas it seemed like Adam Silver came out and gave the game back to the fans, gave the game back to the players, acknowledged their importance, acknowledged how hurt they were to have somebody who's, who's signing the paychecks uh, expose these types of views. And um, I thought it was very, very impressive.
0: I'm glad you brought that up about Stern, and I don't want to make this a Stern bashing session, but it seemed to me that any time you would question David Stern about anything, it was, how dare you? How dare you question any of my decision-making? You know, it's like he was above it all.
3: Yeah, exactly, and he, he would do that with journalists, which is one thing, uh, He would, but he also seemed to do that with his own players, his own employees, and he didn't make it uh, seemed like it was a partnership, which again, the NBA is even more than a lot of other sports because a lot of other sports you know, uh, the laundry and the uniform goes a long way in football and, and you know, football players are to some extent uh, interchangeable. In basketball, they're really not. You can't just take some of the top players out of the game and replace them with, you know, average you know college talent and, and still be able to pull it off, I think, the way you could in, in certain other sports. And he seemed to rebel against that so much and and I think the players probably very much uh, appreciate Adam Silver's hand. Now, you know, we'll see what happens. The first time they're going to have the labor situation coming. You know, if it comes up again in a couple of years, but I think probably coming out of that press conference, the, the players themselves felt like they have a uh, they have somebody who's going to cooperate with them uh, going forward, as opposed to be their adversary.
0: Scott, let's talk about the Celtics. We've got a couple of weeks now to digest the season, 25 and 57. A very frustrating year. It had to be a frustrating year covering them as a journalist. I would think.
3: Yeah, it was, and, and especially in this area when you have um, a lot of people and, and high-profile media people in this area that were just advocating openly advocating for them to lose to get a better draft position. And it becomes it becomes difficult to play in those situations, and it becomes difficult to cover the team in those situations because the players. And especially certain ones, you know, I could go down names on this team. You know, they don't see the these reporters are here. The team, you know, they they see a little bit the team broadcasters. They know they can identify with them a little bit. They're kind of, you know, on their side, I guess. But they don't see the difference between the beat reporters and maybe an afternoon uh, radio disc jockey who's saying, you know, why don't they just go out and lose all these games? Um, so I think it did wear on everybody towards the end. I mean, there were there were storylines and bright spots throughout the season which made it, you know, interesting. Obviously, when Paul Pierce and Kevin Garnett came back, here, that was a uh, a, a very emotional evening when Doc Rivers came back here, when Rajon Rondo came off of his ACL. Um, there were some very nice victories in there, but over that last month, when it became apparent that the team wasn't going to make the playoffs, it wasn't going to be the worst team, but it wasn't going to make the playoffs. Uh, they lost a lot of close games. I think uh, I think a lot of people, uh, reporters and uh, maybe even players in general, everybody except for maybe Brad Stevens, uh, was happy when it uh, when it came to an end on April 16th.
0: Yeah, mercifully came to an end. It got to be, it got to be draining watching, to be honest, because the Celtics I thought played very competitive basketball most of the year, and it was awful hard not to see them get rewarded in the win column for their efforts many nights.
3: Yeah, and it's just a lot of it came down to uh, fourth quarter execution, and it, you know you you did see how it did wear I think on Brad uh, Stevens quite a bit at the end. You know at the beginning. He's talking about it's not the wins and losses. It's bringing everybody together. It's kind of that whole building out. But I think toward the end when he wasn't seeing kind of that little bit of a payoff, you know, maybe the team is a little bit better at the end of the season. Um, Because obviously he's, you know, he's not interested in, in maybe now he's interested in whether they have the third or fourth pick as opposed to the seventh or eighth pick. But during the season, he would rather have them be the eighth worst team in the NBA than the third worst team in the NBA. And we have You know, with a couple of exceptions down the stretch there, uh, it just really didn't happen for him. And and hopefully now that he has a full offseason, remember he wasn't even hired until July of last year, so he he wasn't there for the draft. He wasn't there for the draft evaluations. He wasn't there for any trade discussion or consultation. The the team was basically in place by the time he was hired, Um, you know, with a full offseason. Maybe he'll be able to put his stamp on it a little bit, you know, talk to him. Uh, before the final game of the season, a little bit about that, you know, how much influence do you want to have? It's basically, you know, there's a clear delineation there. It is Danny Haynes' job to put the, the team together. He doesn't have to clear anything by Brad Stevens. But basically, Stevens said, I'm staying in Boston this summer. I'm not going anywhere. He's not going back to Indiana. Uh, he's, he's rooted his family there And I'll be I'll be here all the time. I'll be here as much as they want my influence. So uh, so hopefully that's a, that proves to be a good working relationship between, I don't see why it wouldn't be, but it's, you know, a, a combined effort there, a tag team effort with Ames and Stevens putting together next year's roster.
0: Scott, you've been covering the Celtics since 2005 for Metro West Daily. Assess Brad Stevens as a head coach and his growth over those 82 games.
3: It's hard to say exactly his growth. Um, you know, he came in, the big difference between him and what you've seen from other college coaches over the years is he didn't come in thinking that he knew everything. Uh, he came in saying, "I have to learn this. I have to learn this." Some of the stuff was a little bit more practical than everything else. You know, I think he had to get used to small NBA changes, like advancing the ball after the timeout, which is something he didn't have to he didn't deal with in college. They would have to inbound at the end. Uh, you know, how to maneuver 24 second clocks, uh, how to maneuver end of game strategy stuff. I think that was that's some stuff that he learned over the course of the season that you would expect him to learn. Um, but he didn't come in with that pompous attitude. He came in with an attitude of. You know, I've got a lot to learn, but, you know, I think I can pull this all together. And I think that sometimes it led to maybe a little bit of second guessing um, at the beginning of the season because he would openly admit that, you know, most coaches would come in and say, for instance, Doc Rivers is an example. You know, Doc Rivers, every once in a while he would come out and say, you know, I got to coach better. But for the most part, if something went wrong at the end of the game, he would tell you, we drew up the right play that just didn't execute it. So, NBA coaches are not uh, great at uh, self-deprecation and putting criticism on himself, and that was, um, you know, that was uh, something that Brad Stevens was able to do. And I think it might have cost him in certain points, but I think in in other ways, the fact that he wasn't at the end of the season, he was saying, "Listen, we've all got to get better at this." He wasn't putting himself above a team that was struggling. Where you'd see so many other coaches say, "Well, I just can't get through to these guys, or they're not." You know, they're not listening to what I'm saying or they're not executing the plays that uh, we designed for them or we did this in practice. I don't know why they can't do this in games. The whole routine, uh, you know, the Doug Collins and, and to a certain extent even Doug Rivers would do that. Uh, Brad Stevens went the other way, and I think that that, uh, that kept him connected to the locker room for the most part all the way to the end of the season. I think it served
0: them well. Scott, you recently wrote a column in the Metro West Daily, the, what, the four questions facing the Celtics. We don't have time to get into all of them, but one of the final ones you mentioned was what to do with Rajon Rondo. I think most fans would be startled by this. The Celtics were just 6-24, and 24, as you point out, this season with Rondo starting. Six and twenty-four, including a triple-double in a game they nearly lost by double digits to the worst team in the league.
3: Yeah, and it, it you know you don't want to say that Rajon Rondo is responsible for them losing because obviously when he's on the court, he's probably the most talented player they have. Uh, a lot of people would say far and away the most talented player they have. I don't know if I go there, but he's he's obviously got great talent. But after a while, the numbers start to stack up a little bit. You know, the six and twenty-four when he played, they were six and five. Seems that Phil Pressy started for them this year, and Phil Pressey is an undrafted uh, rookie point guard who shot 30% from the floor, and he was able to have a little above 500 records. If you go all the way back um, to January 13th of last year, uh, they're six and 30 with Rajon Rondo because they lost the last six games he played last year, so they have a winning percentage of about 17, you know, whatever 16.6 or 16.7% with him as a starter, basically over the last 15 months. And the winning percentage is about forty five percent when he's not playing. So at some point, even the biggest Rajon Rondo supporter have to look at that and say, What's the problem there? Is they're not using him right? Is he not executing things right? You know, a lot of it this year is probably just getting, you know, coming up in B and not being able to go through training camp, but it's something to monitor first. Uh, something to monitor going forward that, you know, for basically the last two years they have not been a better team when Rajon Rondo has been on the floor.
0: In fact he is much probable- He has got to be the most polarizing player I can recall in the Celtics in a long time. The camp that loves him really loves him. (laughs) The camp that doesn't really care uh, for him. If you
3: are critical of Rajon Rondo, you will hear from the Rajon Rondo uh, camp uh, loud and instantly, especially in this era of of Twitter and, and social media.
0: Isn't it something? I think it's because he's definitely the Celtics' most exciting player. He's the guy that can make the top ten highlights on ESPN, and people people like that. He's I think he's more exciting than his game actually is, if that makes sense.
3: No, I, I do tend to agree with that, and, and I've often been critical of him both on and off the court, the way he's handled some situations, um, probably more so than a lot of others. Uh, but, you know, it, it to figure out what his role on this team going forward, I, you know, he doesn't stress as a player that can, make, that can necessarily make a bad team better. He could make a good team very good. You know, if they had won the championship, we all know they lost Game 7 to the Lakers back in 2007. If they had won, he probably would have been the finals MVP and deservedly so. Um, he could elevate the play of great players around him, but I think what we saw this year was he's having a very hard time working with a rebuilding team. And um, not that it's ever easy to work with a rebuilding team. We saw that from Paul Pierce, who was, you know, for a long time, I get this now because it was 10 years ago, but at one time Paul Pierce you know, he was just as polarizing as Rishon Rondo in terms of uh, after the Indiana series, when he took off his shirt, when he had the fake um, uh, bandage around his face. Uh, they got blown out in game seven, and everybody figured, well, that guy's going to be as good as gone, and he almost was traded at the draft for, for Chris Paul, and he was able to resurrect his career. And, and basically enjoys almost universal support around here now as being a, it's not necessarily a top five Celtics, even though I would put him in there, a top 10 Celtics of all time. Uh, it'll be interesting to see whether Rajon Rondo's career kind of takes that path and uh, how the Celtics you know work with him going forward or whether he is here going forward.
0: Scott, just one final question for you Are we going to see those fireworks that Wick Rosbeck was talking about?
3: It's difficult to say. I mean, it all, you know, Daniels has been very active around the draft. Um, is the, the trade deadline, you know, a has actually been active around the trade deadline more than a lot of other teams, too. But the trade deadline really is kind of overrated in terms of being, uh, especially with the collective bargaining agreement and the salary tax, uh, the luxury tax now, it, it's, it's very difficult to make. These teams just don't want to make moves around the trade deadline. And we saw that this year with the inability to move somebody, and I'm not saying they were actively shopping them, but you know, the, the fact that a contender doesn't want to uh, take on the salaries of a productive player like Brandon Bass. Uh, shows that there are not a lot of teams that want to do a lot around that trade deadline. In the summer it tends to be a lot more. You know, obviously Danny Ainge had the big trade last year, which was a draft day trade. Uh, was on Rondo and the that was a draft day trade, obviously picked, getting up that pick, but that was the same day as the Sebastian Telfair trade, trading with you know, the with that number seven pick. Obviously the Ray Allen trade was a, a draft day trade. So he tends to be very active. The question is just going to be what's out there. And I think that is where Danny Ainge is really going to have to um, pick a side on the crossroads, whether it's going to be uh, we're going to trade Rajon Rondo and maybe get back another high draft pick and take two players out of this draft that Danny Ainge has repeatedly said that we overrated, or whether we're going to trade that pick and trade a couple of our younger players and bring in that veteran to play with Rajon Rondo. I think it's all going to be what the landscape is going into that draft, um, whether he decides to go one way or the other.
0: Scott Souza, Celtics beat writer, Metro West Daily. Thanks for being a guest on Celtics Beat. Okay,
3: thank you very much for having
0: me. Appreciate it. So, Andrew, a very good point was made in that interview with Scott Souza. The Celtics just six and twenty-four this year, with Rajon Rondo as the starting point guard on the team. That startled me when I found that statistic out.
1: You know what's funny? It doesn't it didn't startle me for a couple of reasons. For one, I mean, this is almost a disclaimer you have to be aware of of the situation that Rondo came in on and the timing of when he came in. Early in the year, maybe it might be a little bit easier for a team that doesn't have high expectations to come out hard and try to, you know, uh, shock the world the way Philadelphia did for about a month or two. But, you know, by the time Rondo came in, about halfway through the year, the writing was on the wall, and as great as Stevens was at keeping the team on task, you know, there may have been some slippage there anyway. So I have to say that as a respect to Rondo disclaimer. But on the flip side, as a basketball nerd, meaning somebody that really gets into these advanced stats, especially the plus-minus stats, you know, the last few years I've made several cases that Rondo, even when he was putting up his best numbers, his best assists, you know, really garnering attention from around the NBA, it wasn't translating to, to great plus-minus numbers. It wasn't translating to the team playing better because he was playing better. It was a lot of times just the opposite. Um, and, and so this isn't the first season, obviously, that the Celtics played worse with Rondo than they did without him. Last season, he got injured just in time for the team to catch fire. The seems, the, the seasons before that, he wasn't injured as much, but the Celtics record is generally very good when he's out. So, you know, these are things to look at, things to keep in mind as we try to decide whether, you know, he, he's the the captain that we, we want this Celtics team to be built around.
0: How can you explain these great Rondo numbers that don't result in Celtic victories?
1: Well, again, putting my nerd hat back on, one of the things that the plus-minus stats tend to show is that, the players that are able to operate off the ball, that can really shoot on offense, create spacing; those tend to be really, really high impact players on offense. Um, you see the same thing with big, um, big men on defense. You know, like your Kevin Garnett your Tim Duncan. That that that's an intense, um property property to bring to a team. But one of the things that tends to show up is players that are ball dominant without being able to efficiently score themselves, don't tend to show up so well. And so with Rondo, he might have 13 assists, but if he used 25 to get those 13 assists, and then on the, you know, say 10 possessions that he shot, um, he he makes less than 50% of his shots, doesn't get fouled much, and doesn't hit very many free throws, and doesn't hit very many threes. You know, he is just creating a situation where the player that has the ball in his hand the most – might not be efficient enough as a scorer to produce a deficient offense. And so if that's the case, and, and that's something that maybe the, the the numbers suggest, then it raises the difficulty. The, the natural thing to do would be to say, well, maybe take the ball out of his hands a bit more and put it more into the hands of others, but he's not a threat off the ball, you know, be, until he develops more of a jump shot. So. It it, it does raise some questions about whether you can build a championship caliber offense around Rondo without having an all-world defense. Like, we've seen championship teams that feature Rondo, but he wasn't necessarily the cause of them. The question is, can he be the, 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 the lead cog in the title?
0: Yeah, you have to wonder, and I've had people tell me that he's a top-five player in the NBA. I'm like, are you nuts? I like Rondo a lot. He's exciting. He's by far the Celtics' most exciting player. But just because you're exciting doesn't mean you're an elite player in the NBA. And if Rondo were a top-five player, he'd be able to carry the team that they had last year to many more victories than six and 30 outings.
1: Yeah, yeah. No, I mean, it's a it's an excellent point and something definitely to, to ponder because – you know, one of the things that we're seeing with kind of this advanced stats revolution is that the box score doesn't always tell. You know, and used to, um, if somebody put up great numbers on a bad team, we would say, oh, those are empty stats. But what we're seeing now is that players that put up good stats, even, you know, on teams that that, that might be successful, might not be, you know, having the impact we're thinking. Right now I'm thinking Rudy Gay. Um, he He's the uh, – uh uh you know, every team that he's traded from immediately gets better as soon as he leaves, <laughs> even though he averages twenty points. You know, twenty plus points the game and is this exciting player, but you know, it it, it requires more than that to be good. And you know, I guess the jury is still out on, on whether Rajon Rondo could be that player or to the more cynical, maybe the jury is in. I, you know, it's hard to say. And
0: that's gonna do it. Andre, never enough time when you and I are together on the show.
1: Oh yeah. Always leave one more.
0: There you go. There you go. We <laughs> want to thank Jeff Zilgit from USA Today. Also, Scott Souza from Metro West Daily for joining us today on Celtic Beat. And that's going to do it. Music for Celtics Beat provided by Carlos Andres Mesa, Astro Vex, and Steph Ligrato. Be sure to follow us on social media. Our Twitter handle is Celtics underscore Beat. And you can like Celtics Beat on Us Radio on Facebook to keep up with the show. Like I said, thanking our guest here, Jeff Zilgit from USA Today, Metro West Daily beat writer for the Celtics, Scott Souza for our executive producer Larry H. Russell, and my co-host, Dr. Andre Snellings On am Ty Ray. See you next Saturday afternoon at 2 p.m. Eastern, 11 a.m. Pacific, for another edition of Celtics Beat, exclusively on CLNS Radio.